we really believe that mankind is a multi-planetary species and our resources on planet Earth are limited. Um, I strongly believe that we have to team up with AI, with robots that uh, are kind of tools for us. To, to improve ourselves. And so we go into danger zones, not alone. We go with AI and technology. Welcome to the Uncharted Podcast. I'm Martin. In this episode, we're talking about exploration. We have some amazing guests who are pushing against the limits of human existence, both above us into the extremes of space and below us into the depths of our oceans. We discuss the differences and similarities between space and the ocean with respect to technology, operational practices and personal perspectives. I'm joined by Dr. Jotika Vermani, Executive Director at Schmidt Ocean Institute and previously the Executive Director of the XPRIZE for Planet and Environment. We also have Naeem Altaf, who is VP for Space Tech at IBM, and Dr. Christian Karash, a research associate working in the field of human spaceflight at the DLR Space Administration, and who is the project lead for Simon, the Crew Interactive Mobile Companion, an AI assistant for astronauts in space. We had a great conversation and and I hope you'll enjoy it. Let's get into it. Okay, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for being here today. I think we're going to have a really, really interesting conversation. I'm going to try not to make it space versus the sea, but if it goes <laughs> that way, that's that's totally on. That's totally on all of you. I don't know who's going to win. I'm going to ask you all, um, first of all, just to introduce yourselves and what you do for a living. So let's start with you, Christian. Hi, my name is uh... Dr. Christian Karish. I'm working at the German Aerospace Center for Space Administration in the human spaceflight area. Um, I'm the project lead for SIMON, an intelligent astronaut ins assistant on the International Space Station. And yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yes. And we're definitely going to talk about Simon later when we start talking about the technology involved in space exploration. So next, Naeem. Uh, hi everyone, thank you so much for having me on this. Uh, this is Naeem Altaf, I'm IBM's Distinguished Engineer and CTO for Space Tech. I run a Blue Innovation Tech Group here in Austin, Texas. Thank you. And Jotika. Hello, thank you uh, for inviting me. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. I'm Dr. Jotika Vamani and I am the Executive Director for the Schmidt Ocean Institute. Uh, so on the ocean side of this conversation. And um, prior to this, I was executive director for Planet and Environment at XPRIZE, where I ran the Shell Ocean Discovery XPRIZE for autonomous and unmanned deep sea technologies. Thank you so much. And it is a, a pleasure and a privilege to have all of you here today. I think we're going to get into some really interesting themes. I think the main, the main theme that we're going to be talking about is exploration, both of the sea and of space. Uh, what I want to establish first is an understanding of what are the frontiers of exploration in your individual sectors? What is what is the limit that we have currently reached that we are pushing against as human beings? Yeah, for the that's a really good question. Um, for the ocean, um, there's two. I think there's two um, answers to that. One is, first of all, the ocean covers seventy one percent of our planet, and we actually really have only even explored uh, somewhere around, I would say. 20%. Uh, we have a, a good map of 20% of the ocean uh, seafloor at this point. So actually, there's still so much uh, exploration still to be done. 
Um, only earlier this year, we stumbled serendipitously across the longest sea creature at 150 feet in length, which if you consider all the thousands of years that humans have been interacting and, and sailing across the seas, finding the longest sea creature in 2020 it just shows what how much is yet to be explored and then the other side of that of course is the technology and where we've reached to with that and it is a very harsh environment um, so we're now on a really great uh, edge of uh, bringing um, unmanned and autonomous technologies and I think uh, you asked what's the what's what's the very edge of it uh, really improving our communication abilities in the ocean. It's not, it's not quite like space. There's this medium that stops us from being able to look at and, and see what's down there as easily. Naeem, what is, what is the threshold in space exploration? I'm guessing we haven't reached 20% of, <laughs> of space exploration at this point, have we? No, probably even, I guess, 1% how big the space is. Yeah, but yeah. right now, uh, again, uh, comparing it to what's happening on the terrestrial, right? Looking at this uh, computation, the where we have gone from the uh, data centers into the cloud computing. And now from there, we are extending to the edge on the ground. And then we are talking about taking edge into the space, into the lower Earth orbit. So over here, the challenges are the network latency and the enormous amount of data being produced. So space exploration, you know, as you will see, we're just hearing almost love. every other week now, the launches are going up from SpaceX and soon others, right, creating these uh, uh, Starlink, uh, the satellite networks on the, in, in the orbit. So you can imagine that uh, data centers will be the next going into the orbit, data being produced. And how can we get the computation into this harsh environment? Because you know you, you need radiation hardened systems to go, but somehow we need to get our, I guess the commodity systems there. So we need to have more innovation done there. So as we look towards going to the moon and beyond the moon to Mars, we need such systems all the way from here to moon and beyond, creating these data centers and how we can do computation right there where the data is being produced. Absolutely. And you mentioned their technology in a harsh environment. So Christian, um, what is the what is the sort of the threshold of um, of your particular um, expertise in this area? Yeah, from my perspective in human spaceflight, I mean, we have a, a permanent outpost, the International Space Station, which is 400 kilometers above our heads running with 28,000 kilometers around the Earth um, since the year 2000, so almost 20 years, permanent presence in space of humans. Back uh, in the last century, yeah, humans walked on the moon, and now, as Naeem already said, we're about to go back to the moon, to stay, and to go forward to Mars. I know why we explore, because we're human beings and we're curious. But it's difficult to bring a business case for curiosity. So what what are the reasons that we're we're pushing forwards on on exploration? Um, Naeem, do you want to jump in on that one? Sure. I think the first uh, answer is the it inspires us. The innovation, looking at the space, whether it's space or the ocean, going into the depth of ocean, or like Dr. Christian was saying, right? We are putting the these digital assistants for the for the astronauts, right? It is inspiration. I mean, a lot of things we have got from working in space. One of the biggest thing is the GPS, which we can't live today without, right? So these are a few of the technologies. And then the Earth observation. There is a huge list of things. And just yes, two days ago, World Economic Forum, they published a report which shows how space has 
impacted or inspired there are like different areas right so if you look at sustainability development goals by united nations almost all of them space you know it can affect that so i think a simple answer is uh, it inspires us to go and do some amazing things yeah mm. and they are very they, they are naturally very inspiring areas aren't they i mean i um when i'm researching for all of these podcasts i try and involve my four-year-old daughter and obviously she's very drawn to the floating robot with the funny face <laughs> obviously that's Thanks. i think that's that's the clear that's the clear <laughs> winner by quite some margin but you know, seeing real videos of people floating in space, seeing uh, ocean exploration. I mean, Joytika, you talked about the discovery of the longest sea creature. I mean, this stuff is naturally inspiring. Um, what else, I mean, can stay with the sea theme. What else, what else can we find? Why, what are we expecting to discover when we explore the oceans? Yeah, so uh, uh, I love the answer that it's inspirational. That's, that's one of the big reasons why we do explore. Uh, for what I also like to say, though, is the ocean covers approximately two-thirds of our planet and we don't really know what's in there or out there. So it's like living in a three-floor house and you only know what's on one floor and you've no idea if there's new medicine, new clothes, new furniture, nothing on the other two floors yet. So who knows what's out there and, you know, what compounds are out there that might actually help to cure some of our you know diseases there's quite a few that do come from the ocean already um, what new materials or source of bio inspirational technology uh, there are creatures there that can conduct electricity and glow in the dark uh, so i think uh, there's also a practical element to why we explore is that what inspires you i think it's just actually the inspiration of finding new wondrous landforms or sea forms in this case or, or new creatures that behave in a way we never expect and i think actually it sort of sets us up for uh, space exploration so for when we do eventually you know um i'm assuming at some point we'll run into aliens in other on other in far <laughs> distant places but but you know until the 1970s we thought everything was carbon-based life forms and then they found hydrothermal vents and it was a different kind of life form. So that life can survive, bacteria can survive in places that there is no light, no oxygen, gives us a clue um, of what we're looking at in outer space as well. So Naeem, um, she mentioned aliens. I mean, what else are we looking for? <laughs> Definitely looking for, beside the aliens also for the, the other planets. I mean, to, to date, which just uh, amazes me is the Voyagers, which two of them, which has just left recently, two, three years ago, our solar system, that they are still communicating back the technology which was built in the 70s, right? So, I mean, and imagine what they will tell us as they keep on going and the future technologies and the future telescopes. I just, just look, see what Hubble Telescope has shown us in the last two decades, right? And they're waiting for the next generation of telescopes to go up. So, I mean, we have barely not even scratch the surface and the, and the same goes for the uh, like you're saying right for the oceans i mean there is so much depth there in the oceans and so much life there which we don't know yet about so so help me understand how harsh the environment is from an exploration point of view and from a technology putting technology into these environments help me understand how harsh is it 
I mean, it's a real technological challenge to, to make um, humans living in space. I mean, you have to take food with you, you have to take water with you, um, you have to take fresh air and also you have to regenerate everything. Um, outside is the vacuum and it's uh, very, very cold, no air to breathe. Um, so it's a very harsh and extreme environment. There are thousands of things which could kill you, which could happen. So that's why we have very, very high uh, safety um, uh, requirements and also security. How are we overcoming those problems? I mean, in some kind, yeah, you're living in an, as an astronaut in a kind of nutshell. So you trust technology and you go out there Yeah, as a hero. I mean, the, the first astronauts, they were uh, jet pilots, very brave, brave people. So I think especially when we are talking about going to moon and especially to Mars, right? I think for at least for some, some time, it will be mostly robotics. They're going to play a huge role in this exploration. Because like Dr. Christian said, right, the uh, human factor, it's, uh, it's very complex to send humans like today. I think for some time it will be robotic robots which will go and do 3D printing or build stuff over there. And then once we get enough testing done with everything and learn about the environment, then I think it will be when the next human goes over there. Is that the same with the oceans as well then? Because obviously you know, the, we are generally been talking about the Mayflower Autonomous Ship on this podcast series, um, which is a completely unmanned research vessel uh, and autonomous through AI. Is that the general? Is that the general best practice? Do we think if we're going to further explore the oceans? Uh, yeah, I think I agree. You know, with uh, what was just said by Naeem and and, and Christian, I think um, uh, going forward, the the scale of uh, the ocean we have yet to explore is so massive that there's just no way we're going to be able to do it all with crewed vessels. By necessity, oceanography has approached this in almost the reverse way that space exploration has to, in the sense that we had people, uh, you know, vessels sailing at sea. Uh, so it was really started with um, uh, manned um, uh, exploration. Uh, but we're now moving towards that step of autonomy and uh, remote ro uh, robotic technologies versus space, which starts a little more with the Uh, robotics and the technologies and and Christian as you said you know getting people out there and and you both said you know beyond there so I actually I kind of see um, ocean and space as two ends of a continuum of a spectrum uh, so you have two ends of the pressure spectrum very very uh, you know deep ocean is high pressure space is is very zero is low pressure we can't breathe in either medium without technological assistance. Uh, we can't explore in either medium without technological existence. Um, so, so in a way, there's, there's this great cohesiveness between the two. So what sort of things are we doing to f facilitate then that through technology? Uh, so, you know, we've talked about the Mayflower, you, well, you mentioned the Mayflower. That's where we're heading is we've got more and more technology, especially in the last five years, that allows for autonomous surface vessels, so no people on board, that can now deploy um, autonomous underwater devices, which basically means we're at a point where uh, for the ocean, um, people sit uh, in mission control along the coast and they control a robot at sea 
that is deploying another robot at sea to do deep sea work and then recovering it and bringing it back. And this is something that's just incredible for the uh, oceanography, for opening up our exploration capabilities. Coming back to kind of talking about the fact that we're we're trying to take humans out of harm's way, as you sort of say, we're, you know, humans, we sit in this Goldilocks zone between the two pressures. If anybody who's ever been exposed on any of the extremes of our own planet, you very, you very quickly realise just how fragile we are as human beings. I mean, you can just get stuck up a mountain skiing, for example, and, and that's enough to realise just how how sort of soft and squishy and the fact that we need sort of perfect conditions as as human beings. Have you yourselves be, put yourselves in harm's way? Is that why you do this for a living? I was going to say, I don't do this to I put myself in harm's way. This is not why I explore. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, exploration is one side of, uh, you know, putting yourself on the edge. But nature has its own uh, ways of putting us in in harm's way if you uh, to use your phrase there so I was going to you know say that there are storms and which are big and you see them coming on satellites all the way down to what we're currently facing this year which is a virus uh I think we'll always have uh, an element of uh of uh, nature to deal with in principle we have no other chance I guess we we, we are animals we climb from trees and uh, it's about not only inspiration and to, to put ourselves into danger and to explore, to grow. Um, in human spaceflight, we really believe that uh, mankind is a kind of multiplanetary species and our resources on planet Earth are limited. And maybe not our or next generation, but the over next, they maybe are forced to leave also our planet. And we are preparing for this. And maybe I can add something from, from the SIM project. Um, I strongly believe that we have to team up with AI, with robots that uh, are kind of tools for us to, to improve ourselves in kind of not in a kubernetic way or so, but we work with them together with an AI in a team, like a buddy. And this is what our generation is, is doing, uh, which is happening now. And so we go into danger zones, uh, yeah, not alone. We go with AI and technology. So let's, so let's talk about the Simon Project. Do you want to just, just give us a, a, an overview of um, why it was created, what it, what it currently does and where you're taking so it? So the vision originally came um, yeah, by Airbus back in 2016. They did a study and they pitched this idea to have a deep space companion um, let's put it like this. So Simon, as it is today, it's a first technology uh, demonstration on the International Space Station. Already version 2 is up there. It's a free-floating robot equipped with an artificial intelligence, which is powered by IBM Watson. And um, Simon is meant to, to support the astronaut that he has both hands free, so it's fully voice-controlled. He can do video recording, he can show... Um, yeah, important uh, agenda points. He can display uh, experimental setup uh, and, and other stuff. But nowadays, um, working in space, there is also this kind of very extreme environment of, of zero gravity. You have a lot of agenda points and you slip from one science to the other. So it's a very stressful job. 
And if you have an AI next to you, like a navigation system for your day and for your science with, with background knowledge, um, it's very easy and, and not so stressful to work only alone on the topics. And such a device can help you, assist you. And the vision of, of um, Airbus is, is even beyond that, that an AI can be a real crew companion. Um, that it's accepted by the crew if we send out uh, humans to Mars, for example, there will be four or six uh, um, persons and they will be on their own. So there are many psychological effects also, uh, which an AI could be a countermeasure. For example, we have um, a kind of groupthink effect. If you put uh, some people for longer in one room and they stay for some hundred days, they try to synchronize and they come up with the same ideas and um, an AI could assist as a neutral, maybe more fact-oriented perspective. And what about the psychological effects of being in deep space? We do not know if we really go to Mars and Earth will become a small tiny star like the stars in the night sky. Uh, what happens to human beings if they are looking back to Earth but it's so far away and they know within months there will be no help. And so our mission now in human spaceflight is to assist humans as good as possible. And I believe we made with Simon a first step um, to have an AI companion uh, for astronauts. And yeah, we want to go further. Does, does something like the Simon Project have an application, I assume, in ocean research and exploration? I assume it does. As you were talking, I was also thinking of the vessel that was uh, that what was wintering over in uh, the Arctic uh, this year and the scientists on board and they were prepared to stay I believe for about a year on board that vessel because it was impossible to get in and out of really so so I think there's a number of uh, potential applications where people put themselves in relative isolation for various reasons. Maybe in the future someone can <laughs> invent an application as a uh, yeah, a diving webcam which can follow the divers to take nice selfies or something like this. Because that's another part of it, isn't it? It takes, it takes photos and videos. There is actually a technology that's relatively nascent in the ocean world, uh, which does use a uh, robotic technology to, and camera system uh, to uh, automatically identify different things like fish, coral, you know, different creatures and then um, can essentially follow. Uh, so using, you know, machine learning and, and, and recognition, uh, start to follow. So it's starting for the oceans. It's very, very relatively new. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Mayflower does have, has, a compute, has computer vision on it, which it uses for steering, just simply to be able to identify um, debris and other ships and, and use that for collision avoidance. And these are great use cases for the edge computing. And we're just beginning here because like Dr. Christian was saying, right, like if the equipment is in space or going down, we don't want to have, we don't want to connect back to the ground. We want them to have enough information to learn, do reinforcement learning and keep on going. And that's what all edge computing is about. So I think we will see lots of interesting use cases now with edge computing. So just as with navigating the oceans, debris is a big issue in space, isn't it, Naeem? So we uh, just uh, open source two projects. One is the space situational awareness. And what that means is uh, you can, if you look above, just like how we have 
plastic and other stuff in the ocean. We have a similar kind of challenge, challenge now in the low Earth orbit, the space debris. And with the launch of these uh, mega constellations, it's just beginning. And we, so one of the, you know, SpaceX, they're up to 800 and there are other three companies. So in total, if they all implemented this in the next three years or five years, we are looking at around 40 to 50,000 satellites. And remember in last 50 years, we have only launched, we only have 9,000 out of which 5,000 are active. So imagine five years from now. So, so basically we open source this solution. It's a conjunction search, which can tell you when two objects are, you know, can, can collide. There was a collision uh, risk just two days ago over the weekend. Space station had to maneuver in first week of September. That was its third maneuver just in one year. And when space station has to do maneuver, it is it's a big deal. It, I mean, they actually had to run into their evacuation module, uh, the astronauts, three of them. So, uh, so this that's a big ch uh, problem we are watching, and you know we just uh, open source. Second thing was this CubeSats, which are which you will see a lot of them going up. Basically, these are miniature satellites, like they, they start from 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter, and so this is a much lower cost to entry and they can still do quite a bit in terms of scientific experiments or any other payloads you have but at a fraction of a cost than a regular satellite so we built a framework where you can have sort of a mesh network between these cubesats and they can do sort of a distributed computing just quick example so let's say there is a, a big hurricane coming in the atlantic ocean and one of these sats they have these cameras they detect the that event and then it polls among its uh, set of CubeSats who has the capacity to start watching this, uh, you know, this event for next seven days and they can do an imaging, computation, whatever needs to be done. Basically edge computing happening in the orbit. So can you talk about the Artemis project and where we are with that right now? There's a lot of activity happening this year, but it was formed up last year around this time frame. And the goal is to go back to the moon and beyond in 2024. And for that, uh, this, uh, because you need, there's a SLS, the most powerful rocket ever being created, and then you know SpaceX and Blue Origin and others, there are three landers, and they're creating a whole ecosystem because you need human landers, you need the a new gateway, which will be closer to the moon, then you need the rovers, then you need the orbiters, then you need data, data centers on the moon, because this time they are going to go and stay there. Uh, yesterday was announced that they're putting a 4G telecom network on the moon. And so there is a huge set of activities happening for Artemis. I, li I like the idea of all of this, like data centers and, and 4G on the moon. Coming back to the oceans, Jotika, tell me about the Falcor. Um, so we have a research vessel, the Falcor, that um, when the Schmidt Ocean Institute was established in 2009 by Eric and Wendy Schmidt, um, they provide this vessel, or we provide this vessel at no cost to scientists uh, to go out to the uh, ocean and do research, or even technology developers. Um, and so right now, the Falcor is exploring the northern Great Barrier Reef. Uh, we have a remotely operated vehicle on board, which can go down to 4,500 meter depth and has very sophisticated 4K camera system, which is um, how we saw the Siphonophore uh, back in April. And so we broadcast live dives through a tether. So as 
we discover and as the scientists see something for the first time, anyone in the world can also watch at the same time. Um, we just yesterday celebrated the 400th dive for this uh, piece of technology since 2016. Uh, and uh, th these are, this is a part of the world that's never, ever been seen before. We go down, you know, a few hundred meters below the sea surface. Uh, some dives go down a lot deeper than that, obviously. But um, so, yeah, we're, we're exploring right now the Great Barrier Reef. And I want to play, I want to play back a, a lovely phrase that you yourself have heard, have heard you say in the past, which is this idea of um, history, mystery and wonder. Yeah. So, so the Great Barrier Reef, I mean, we all, you know, we all see it. You can see it from space. Uh, it's, it's an iconic, large natural feature, uh, beautiful corals, which unfortunately this year have experienced um bleaching the, the third worst in the last five years um, but those are the shallow reefs and it does extend down a long way like hundreds of meters and so what are the landforms that are down there uh, so in the last month or so you know they've seen uh, underwater landslides there's evidence that at some point in geological past in our historical past not talking about history that these were actually exposed um to the atmosphere and so the water level has changed or the land has slid so there's some really interesting things um, emerging just from looking at the the underwater seascape if you like around the Great Barrier Reef so there is definitely an element of history there's definitely an element of mystery and there is wonder as well because um, I think this year alone, and this is a year which has been really limited for field work uh, globally because of COVID-19, we managed to keep going and it's anticipated that um, scientists on the Falcor this year have uh, discovered, we think, around 40 new species uh, of marine life, as well as uh, species that exist in places they never expected to see them. So... Previously, you know, for example, a fish that was only seen in Hawaii has now been seen in Australian waters. So there's definitely an element of wonder as well. And you, you, you raise the question there of, of biodiversity. We're discovering more species, but we know that as a planet, we are rapidly losing our biodiversity. Is that part of the mission for a lot of these projects? The, um, it, so I think inherently whenever you go exploring in the ocean, you're going to come across some, some form of life, right? So it's really a question of, and again, I go back to what I said at, uh, close to the beginning of this conversation, that we haven't really explored the ocean. So when I said, you know, we've mapped perhaps 20% of the seafloor, uh, the ocean is a three-dimensional uh area so vertically and, and looking at it from a three-dimensional space so um, we really have barely scratched the surface of what wildlife is out there um, there's certain things we know um, you know the big big uh, creatures the sharks and the, and the whales and things but there's so much uh, on a smaller scale that we've not yet seen. How does it cross over? Because I know that there's initiatives such as mapping mapping the ocean floors by 2030 and IBM are a part of the Ocean Decade initiative. Um, how much how much of the work is, is driven, is funded, is initiated by this sense of a ticking clock that we have for things such as climate change? 
I think the UN Decade of Ocean Science is really focusing this attention on the oceans. Um, so the full title is the UN Decade of Ocean Science for the Sustainable Development Goals uh, in recognition that the ocean provides food, uh, it provides life, 50% of our oxygen comes from the ocean that we breathe. Um, a healthy ocean is ultimately in our best interest for a healthy uh, atmosphere and planet as well. Um, so I think there's a lot more focus uh, gearing up to this next decade that starts in January 2021. Uh, and then, as you mentioned just now, there's CBA 2030, which is a concerted effort that was launched in 2017 um, to map the seafloor by 2030. Um, when, when I launched that XPRIZE, the Ocean Discovery XPRIZE, which was in December of 2015, only about 5% of the seafloor had been mapped to a high resolution. And now five years later, we're now at 20%. But back then in 2015, the estimate uh, for mapping the entire seafloor with the technology of that day, uh, five years ago, was that it would take 200 to 600 years wow. to using that technology from five years ago to get a high resolution map of the seafloor. So the fact that we are globally on this trajectory to try and get it done by 2030 is an enormous shift forward. And that's partly from this new wave uh, and partly the XPRIZE as well was the push on unmanned and uncrewed and autonomous technology to map the seafloor. What does that allow us to do? I mean, obviously, at some point, we will have the equivalent resolution of a Google Maps for the ocean floor. But what, what do we then do with that? Um, well, right now, we don't even know um, all the seamounts. Um, there are features down there, land features that we don't, we haven't even seen or discovered yet um, that are hundreds of meters in, um, you know, in vertical extent. So it would be like on land if you suddenly came across a, a mountain that's, you know, 500 meters high that you never knew existed before. It's a seamount. They may not be big um, in... Um, horizontal area but they may be tall pinnacles and uh, so there's landforms we haven't seen there's obviously uh, shipwrecks down there that have not yet been um, uh, found so there's a lot of our own human history it's like um, the other thing I like to call the deep sea is it's uh, the world's largest museum but we just don't have access to it yet uh, they're in preservation some of these things so you know every so often you'll hear this amazing story from off the coast of Greece uh, where they've discovered a whole new uh, you know cadre of shipwrecks uh, dating back hundreds or, of years and uh, so it really lends to our own understanding of our history as well. What's driving what's driving space exploration from a um, again coming back to this idea of a, the problems that we face as a planet? Is there a is there a business case for that, or is it being is it being purely driven altruistically? Um, what, what's what's driving it? Both. I mean, the business case right now, uh, if you look at one of the big business cases, are the Earth observation. So Earth observation, the satellite is playing a huge role. So whether we talk about the maritime or the communications like you know from gps point of view or looking at the uh, melting or melting uh, glaciers or looking at the water droughts right looking at the different areas i think that's where the huge business use cases are 
and as you know in the low earth orbit around 17 to 18 times they can circle the the globe and with the latest generation of these uh, earth observing satellites they want to scan the whole globe within three days so every or they want to actually reach to one day but in three days you have scanned the whole globe so your information is only three days old right so uh so I think these are the, from the business point of view, the Earth observation, the communications, and now with all these mega constellations going up to provide internet connectivity all over the globe. Now, beside that, it's just, a, I don't know, fascination, inspiration, looking at, I mean, just, I mean, just uh, imagine, you know, because Hubble is coming, you know, it's, it's almost over, the time is up, and there are more going up. The thing which fascinates me, and you know, is just looking through the images of, what Hubble has shown us in the last 20 years and what the next generation of these telescopes are going to go up. Imagine what they will show us, right? Because the technology is so far advanced, we have, we can do augmentation through AI. So, right, so there's, so I think the next 20, 30 years, I, I tell all the youngsters, this is, this is the industry to be in. If you, you know, there's so much going to happen. So it's, it's just a beginning. Yeah, Naeem, I'm, I'm completely fine with what you're saying. And I really believe that that space is open for business in our generation. It's a kind of gold rush. I mean, back in the days or in the history, it was mainly governmental driven. And now many companies, uh, yeah, like also big people like uh, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, they really want to make a business case out of it. And there are also resources and this is one question I wanted to raise in, in space travel. It's always uh, a competition, which is a driver for people to be first, to, to put their flag in and say, this is mine. Um, and there is also cooperation on the other side, which is an enabler, because no country can do everything on its own. And I would be highly interested how it is in mapping the ocean. Is it also a kind of hunt to be the first, then I, ha I map this area and I can somehow find resources? Or is it more a cooperation? Um, I think it's both. Um, I think there is um, so much that, you know, first to map is uh, very exciting, of course. But I think following closely on the heels of a new map is, well, now what lives here and what resources and what level of detail can you get down to? And let's send, uh, you know, a more detailed scientific investigation to follow on after this. So a map really to me is, um, it's the basic piece of understanding we need as far as the ocean goes. Um, once you understand where things are, then you can really send additional uh, scientists and, and work and, and see what's actually there. So to me, it's understanding. Once you've understood something, then you start to value it. And then only when you start to value something, whatever that means to you, whether that's uh, financial or um, ecological or uh, from a health perspective, then you start to make it healthy. So to me, it's like a uh, you need a map. We need to know where things are. So like Naeem said, the Hubble Space uh, Telescope showed us our universe and now looking yes. at the ocean. So yeah, I think this is really exciting and the ocean and space are quite very, very close to each other. Yeah, and it's funny, I call, I, I uh, Naeem, I tell all, all the uh, younger generation that they should get into ocean. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I think... Um, 
<laughs> and I, I, I call this a, a new age, a, a new golden age of ocean exploration because of these new mm -hmm. technologies. So there's definitely a lot of similarities between the two. So you've, there's a few things you mentioned there. I just as we come to the end, I want to talk about. We've we've talked about the next generation. I referenced earlier the fact that I was showing my four-year-old daughter. Uh, who's called Artemis because uh, my wife is Greek. Um, all of the stuff, all the projects that you all work on, and obviously she's very attracted to Simon. But the seeing real spacemen, people, real people in space, floating around and not in the kind of the cartoon world, seeing the oceans and the the fish, it's so it's hard not to be massively, massively inspired. And that's actually not the problem. So what I want as a kind of a takeout from each of you is the people who listen to this which is all sorts of people. It's a very broad audience. You say space is open for business. How can people start to reskill or start their careers, start their educations? What can they do to be a part of that next generation? Honestly spoken, one of my colleagues, uh, she only studied physics uh, because she saw people walking on the moon. Yeah? It really inspired her. Uh, and our generation has a lack of something like this. So within my lifetime, there were exciting things happening. We landed robots on Mars and I was inspired to study physics. And maybe for my young daughter, I want to give her this curiosity of exploring or try to, to understand why things are working, why, why nature works like it works. And those are things... Yeah, you can inspire by going to the ocean or going in space. And I strongly believe that uh, studying something, if it's biology or engineering or, or physics, um, is a really high value for all society. And it's not only business or money driven. Um, people really, they're curious and they want to know. And this is something I want to give my little daughter. And she's very curious and very smart. Sometimes that's, <laughs> I think she's even smarter than I am and my wife. So usually the way you have the advantage that you actually can bring us. I mean, I assume not the actual Simon, because I'm guessing it costs quite a few, quite a few uh, euros. Um, but you have the advantage of actually being able to have the kind of the physical thing, right? I mean, yes. And she really likes Simon. So my little daughter, she met Simon already. He's only speaking English, but she feels kind of attracted of this white ball with a nice face speaking and she she really hugged it so it's a kind of uh, technology uh, love i don't know in a kind of child merchandise <laughs> models anyway yeah, no, uh, 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 name so i think uh, especially the times we are in right now with this what happened with covid right majority of the education systems have gone online kids right so kids are learning a new medium of how to interact and learn I think in today's age, there is so much information. It's almost overloaded, so much available that you just need to be curious about whether it's oceans, gland, doesn't matter. Just pick whatever the kid likes, right? There's so much information available. If they're interested in space, I mean, in Europe, we have, you know, European Space Agency, in US, we have NASA, and there is so much, uh, you know, uh, development happening in the private sector here as well, that there is, there's so many options out there. To reach out and you know online join these programs and do exploration whatever you like i like to say that uh you know the sky is not the limit anymore i mean you can do 
you can do so many things because of the resources are, which are available today which we did not have like 20 years ago and the basic element here is the is the internet connectivity from an ocean point of view how can people get involved yeah so um i actually agree very much with what christian said and what naeem said that um I, I got into this actually through space. Uh, I grew up near Jodrell Bank. I grew up in Manchester and as a child would go uh, to Jodrell Bank and I'd also watch Doctor Who on TV. So I was, uh, you know, inspired and I did physics uh, and my goal was to do astrophysics. And uh, but then, you know, growing up in the UK, um, weather is uh, the most talked about topic of conversation and I was always fascinated with weather and it was when I was doing astrophysics I did atmospheric physics at the same time and realized that it you know and so that's how I drifted down it's like a downward career from space down all the way to the bottom of the ocean but the point is that uh, if you have that curiosity and that interest in any particular branch of science or engineering um, definitely, you know, zoom in and focus on it and be open to to changing uh, till you find what you love to do. And then Naeem made a really good point that there are now resources available that we never had uh, growing up that really um, open up the world. So, um, you know, as far as the ocean's going, please, you know, stay uh, curious, follow along, whether it's the Shmir Ocean Institute or others who are exploring and showing you what's out there um, and and learn about the natural world and, and the planet that we live on and, and space uh, as we expand out from here. Yeah, it's a lovely sentiment to end on. I mean, I would also add, we, we did a recent... Um actually did a podcast last year with someone from the London Space Network from the UK point of view, which is a meetup group. And it's actually people understanding that you can, you can transfer skills. People who are currently maybe doing web development can actually, they, there are, there are ways in um, to transfer those skills into things which perhaps are more meaningful, more aspirational than what they're currently doing. Um, there's lots of, lots of ways in. I think that's certainly my outtake is that you don't, it's not that old idea of you need to be an ace fighter pilot who then becomes a kind of you know the the one percent person who gets to be an astronaut there's such a such an industry built around all of this isn't there that has many thousands of people who can be involved and i assume it's a very rewarding career you all seem very happy in what you do yes and just to add to that so my major was a computer science i'm not an astrophysics and nothing to do with you know astronauts but just just because i like it and i shifted it and this, I get this inspiration from uh, the uh, the innovations which happened in the Spain in the eighth, ninth century. The people at that time they were not just one major. If you go and read the history, there were three or four majors doing different things. So I totally believe that we humans are fully capable of doing multiple things. Let's let's leave it there. It's such a wonderful conversation. We could go on and on, but we can't unfortunately because we're all very very busy. So. Um, once again, thank you so much for all of your time. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was fun. Thank you. I'd like to once again thank Jodhika, Christian and Naeem for their time. You can find out more information or send us your feedback at mas400.com. This podcast was produced by Ben Toland. Our engineer was Ariel Sultan and it was hosted by me, Martin Gooding. It is an IBM production. 